Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This week on the Artelligence Podcast, I'm joined by James Tarmy, who covers the art market for Bloomberg. We have a conversation with Elise Thompson, who's an executive producer at Here Be Dragons, a multimedia agency that works with artists to develop virtual reality Let's start with Hudson Yards, which just announced that there's going to be a very large piece of, I don't know if we can call it public art, but it's certainly a public uh, um, structure of some sort that's going to anchor the development. I was impressed that Steve Ross, the developer, mentioned he had gone through Anish Kapoor and several other uh, major artists and decided that he didn't want, you know, just a, a, a statement piece by a famous artist. Instead, he wanted to build this, what we now know is Thomas Heatherwick's uh, vessel. So uh, Elise, I thought, you know, this is sort of your bailiwick, the world where art and the rest of the environment uh, uh, converges. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on the vessel? You know, my, uh, my first, my first uh, response to this, actually, just taking off, um, on your first uh, point about the way that he considered several leading artists and then decided he wanted uh, a quote, work of art by an architect. I think this points to a larger social trend that's emerging as art becomes more popular than ever um, and is seeing these kind of record numbers with you know, Christos you know, floating uh, bridges, you know, attracted 1.3 million people over 16 days. They were expecting you know, 500,000. I think more and more people are feeling that they want to create these kind of large scale, um, kind of uh, spectacular, awe-inducing environments that attract um, people primarily, I think, because of Instagram, because Instagram really changed the game here, um, where now it's important to have something to photograph yourself in front of. And people are drawn to things because they can photograph themselves in front of it. So going back to Heatherwick, um, I think that there is a certain prejudice uh, against contemporary and fine artists from the highest creative classes um, that are not directly involved in the art world, right? Because the art world is insular, it is cut off from popular, you know, culture, and there's not many bridges into the art world. There's, it's, it's very, if you don't know, you know, uh, if you're trying to find the work of an artist, you know, you might Google their name and then you look on Google image search and you're going to find all these disembodied images and you're not going to know if it's like a painting, a photograph of a painting or a photograph or, you know, a picture of a sculpture or whatnot. And, you know, then maybe you hit on the gallery website and, you know, you're going to see a CV that will say, you know, this museum in Antwerp by this curator or they won the Hugo Boss Prize and you're going to have no idea what the Hugo Boss Prize is. You're going to think maybe that's a fashion show, you know, and then you go to an art website and it's a news story, you know, that will also probably not make sense. And then you maybe go to, you know, uh, Art Forum and it's an incredibly in critical text that will absolutely make no sense and make you feel stupid, right? There's this sense that art is less important. And I think it's coming from like, there's this prejudice from the highest creative people because they kind of feel rebuked. Are you you suggesting that Ross actually chose not to go with an artist, but went with, I mean, Heatherwick's hard to define. He's not really an architect, though he works with architects. He's sort of a, a designer. Uh, uh, who works with architectural forms in, in some way, but that he went with that kind of statement piece to be more 
um, welcoming and draw more people. I mean, Ross has said, uh, I think in New York Magazine, that he, he wanted this to make it the new center of the city. And so he needed a structure that people would gather around, and I think more importantly, uh, take photographs around right. uh, and, and make people aware of the, you know, this place uh, in the center of the city. I mean, it cost $150 million to build. I mean, you could have gotten an incredible work of art for that, but you wouldn't have had you know, the, the ability, uh, the, the lifestyle access that you have, this people running up the steps, you know, this whole idea that like health was gonna be a part of this sculpture. I think the interactivity that you might have gotten with this is much higher, but also to place a work of art in the middle of that, it makes the statement that this is kind of like, you know, I mean, there's a sense of democracy perhaps that it's signaled by choosing an architect to do this rather than choosing, you know, an Anish Kapoor or a Jeff Koons puppy, you know, or something like that. Well, I, you know, I immediately, when I saw this, uh, the Hudson Yards development on one end of the High Line, uh, the now completed north end of the High Line, uh, and at the very south end of the High Line is the uh, Whitney Museum. And there was a uh, project that first was announced for LACMA, then was suggested for uh, Chelsea that Ke Jeff Koons has seemingly wanted to build for many years of this um, you know, train suspended from a crane that uh, uh, it's a steam engine, so it goes off once or twice a day uh, and all. And, and it's kind of hard not to think about what it would be like if that were built, or maybe what if it would be like if that, which was, I guess, too uh, uh, expensive at $25 million for either museum to get the money together, which I guess you could have had six of uh, those trains all along the right. High Line for the price that they're spending at uh, Hudson Yards. Yeah, I think it's really disappointing. But again, I think that that sort of choice also points to, I mean, what, what I think is, you know, a, a very nascent and you know, small, like quiet prejudice among people that are not involved in the art world, but are making these large, I, I realize how this sounds, you know, that it, that it sounds kind of like a far-fetched comment, but, you know, I, I was an editor at Artform for five years, and for the past year or so, you know, I've, I've worked as, you know, an, an executive producer, and basically spend most of my days explaining to highly creative people why art is important. And most of these people, I mean, they're, they're people that are highly cultured, if they're, they are Broadway producers, they're CMOs, you know, of, of major major companies like Apple or Google, you know, people that are doing things that are really important. Um, you know, they're, they work in media, you know, whether it's at Viacom, they're producing films. And, and the thing is, is that you can see this constant sort of like umbrage towards that world, especially when it moves into any form of like advertising. Because they, they feel like you either have to be this species called a collector to be engaged with the art or you're somehow uh, blocked out of it? Yeah, I think it's elitist, it's not accessible, and why should I care sort of thing. There, there is that sort of, and why is it important? And it's, I mean, it's a very odd kind of trend, I think, that's happening, um, but it's something that has been more clear than ever to me because the arguments you have to make for art to happen when you leave the art world are absolutely enormous and surprising. You know, I, and I, I think that in the art world, it's so the conversation is so closed circuit that we don't even see it because we're all just talking to ourselves. But as soon as you step out of it, 
Do you, do you, I'm sorry, uh, do you think, and this is as much a question for you, that, that part of that problem is that even the collectors in the world you just described, there are many advertising, mm. uh, theater, movie people, you know, uh, uh, business people who buy art, but when they buy art, they're buying it as an object, less as engaging in the kinds of ideas that we often are, are sort of trying to unpack and make sense of in artist statements uh, at all. Just because someone makes something that they find interesting doesn't mean that the person who gives them money for that thing needs to find the same things interesting about it. Authorial intent is obviously important in some cases and crucial for understanding many artworks, especially artworks that are produced today. But simultaneously, the fact that these people are buying these objects has absolutely no bearing on the political discussion that the objects from which the objects were produced. That said, I think that it's interesting that you touch on this idea of art as being unaccessible and um, fundamentally uh, elitist and that being a barrier for kind of decision makers um, in the kind of corporate world because the Hudson Yards, uh, it's called The Vessel, I think? Yes. Yeah, it is called. Mm -hmm. Right, I mean, that's basically the same criticism that's being lobbed against it. Right? It's, it's, it's accessible in the sense that people can walk up and down it, but it's not accessible in the sense that it has any sort of um, real porousness. Um, with no one knows its function. It's not meant to have one. So that may, it makes it somehow hermetic, not knowing what it, it really is supposed it, to be. Precisely. And then there's that form of elitism, which is that this person um, who has extraordinary sums of money in this kind of again, hermetic environment, has decided to do what he wants to do, but somehow is also, um, in a sense, imbricating the, the kind of public. I mean, what people aren't really talking about is the fact that Hudson Yards is heavily subsidized by New York City. And so, in a sense, it's a private endeavor, but in another sense, we as taxpayers have just paid basically a billion dollars to build a suspension bridge over a rail yard so that people could put in a new headquarters for a coach. Um, <laughs> Well, but the, they're creating a new center to the west side. And you know this is the legacy of the Bloomberg uh, administration in the first uh, uh, part of it. And Bloomberg has been heavily involved in making sure things like the culture shed, now I, uh, just called the shed, uh, 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 gets built. Uh, and that whole success of the High Line, which has been greater than anyone imagined, uh, which has ramifications on Chelsea, the art dealing neighborhood, uh, both from a real estate perspective and just uh, traffic, has been in, in some way, maybe not the, the most direct way, the success of art. Because people are more engaged in art and, and certainly the neighborhood that it is, that there is a museum on one and that um, uh, you know we, we have this sort of playground being created there that wants to have this object that at least can be discussed in artistic terms, uh, you know, e even if it, it may or may not be a work of art, a, a sculpture. Completely, and we see museum attendance going up everywhere. Um, at this point, it's kind of plateauing, but for a long period of time, it was climbing at just unbelievable rates year over year. And I don't think it's simply that people the world over suddenly kind of began to realize the importance of abstract expressionism or you know, early 20th century photography. I think that um, there is a pretty direct correlation between these 
unbelievable sums paid for a tiny group of artworks um, and the headlines that those produce. You see that trickle down in the market in terms of um, there are more small time people purchasing artworks and considering that art, that purchase as kind of a participation in an art market, even when it's not really, right? You see unbelievable growth on that front. And I think it's very difficult not to see some correlation between more and more people participating in the art market because they have become more aware of art as a potential asset or place to put their assets and the engagement with art on a variety of levels. There also seems to be just a greater acceptance of art as, um, or I'm sorry, the vocation of artist as a meaningful role. Um, in Miami, I just saw the, the new stadium has a whole group of street artists who are working there, uh, decorating uh, uh, aspects of the new stadium. Uh, when the Dallas Cowboys redid their stadium, there was a, a lot of art installed in, into it. There's an Ursula von Reidingsvard at, at Reidingsvard, excuse me, at, at Barclays, like right outside of Barclays. I mean, that's not something that you would necessarily imagine would be there, right? Like there used to be bronze statues of sports heroes. But I think that you pointed to a really interesting thing with the stadiums, you know, that's that sort of thing, you know, the Dallas Cowboy Stadium actually has a really fantastic collection of art. You know, it's it's incredibly critical, it's surprising, it's young. They, you know, there's a lot of emerging work, there's a lot of established work. In the I mean, stadium? yeah, in the stadium itself. It's it's really good. I mean, shockingly good. They have a great Talk about an intervention and engaging an audience. I mean, there's you are putting artists everything I agree with everything you said earlier and yet here are people putting artists right in a confrontation with ordinary people who have don't care right, right? and they, so they have to live or die on their ability to engage those people and it seems to be working I, I mean I, they, they've done a good job and it, it, it slowly is making its way if not to the you know that creative class at least out into the population much the way that um, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago in the UK, that group of YBA artists right, right. became pop culture figures, and and the, the you know presently the UK common people uh, you know as part of the vernacular are engaged with uh, contemporary art, uh, not in a theoretical way, but in a, in a sort of very straightforward familiarity way with that art. Yeah, but I I I totally agree, and I think that it's interesting that it's worked so well in Dallas because you don't. I think going back to that division, you have people perhaps that are a lot more accepting to looking at something that they don't know what it is because it's people, it's a huge mass audience going to a football game. So I feel like I spend a lot of my time trying to, one, not embarrass people, right? And two, somehow explain that artists like JR or even like Cause don't have the criticality um, of artists that you're seeing on the fourth floor of the Whitney or whatever now the fourth floor of the Whitney is, right? And you know, when, when I'm talking to technology companies like Samsung or Apple who are making, consider themselves the absolute leader in robotics and design for technology, it's very odd to me that they aren't working with the cutting edge artists. And I think one of the, the basic things that I've also seen in this, they're, they're predisposed to, talk, to work with tattoo artists, right? That they would consider, they actually said that to me. They worked with this uh, tattoo artist who also, I, I would say, a lot of people consider themselves artists now. 
And you know, they were very, they said, oh, we wanted to feature an artist, so we used this person in, this, in a commercial. And you know, that's somebody that, it, I would have loved to see your face. <laughs> I mean, well, it's just, I mean, I, I, it's, so you have to figure, I've, I've had to really develop a rhetoric around basically saying, okay, well, and the best way to do it is to say, well, that person has had no major museum shows. They're not represented by, you know, a gallery that would be at Art Basel. Um, they don't, they have no support by a collector base and there's no critical text on them. And that's really the only way you can do it without sounding, you know, uh, like you're a snob. You know, because that's, and that is what immediately turns people off. Because if you sound like you're a snob, and then they react by putting street artists as like the forefront of culture, which honestly, art is usually 20 years ahead of your, of its time, right? So I think right now, what, you know, the relational aesthetic artists were doing in the early 90s, you're seeing happening in mass culture right now with like experiential, you know, installations being created. Major Hollywood studios right now are exploring the, 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 the question that Philippe Perrine know set into motion which was what is a film without a camera you know and that's now being trying you know MGM is trying to get its head around that right now and how can they present films in a way that are interactive and don't have a screen in front of them you know I, I, I just wanted to go on to the just general uh, back into the art world to, to take a few steps down the high line uh, in, into the streets where the galleries are what you've heard in terms of what's selling uh, around town. Without the hype and the sense that people are participating in this kind of like giddy, um, speeding rocket of a, of a market where if they don't get it now, they will never get on, is that um, it seems to me that a lot of smaller galleries that might normally have sustained themselves not just through their um, shows but also through kind of secondary sales of their own artists um, which is obviously how a lot of these people are able to kind of put on challenging uh, works and also show up to art fairs around the world with the staff and art. Um, those people seem to be suffering in really profound ways and the attrition rate that we're seeing um, is particularly troubling when you go downtown. Attrition rate from galleries, small yes. galleries downtown uh -huh. aren't selling enough to stay in business. Yes. And, and I mean, the art world is just obviously constantly full of people gossiping about the demise of someone else. But um, if various people are correct, there's going to be a slew of other closings unless like something goes very, very well for a lot of these people in the kind of coming season. I've heard someone suggest, you know, that we have too many artists, though it always seems to me like that's the point. We're supposed to have too many uh, artists. And I don't really feel like the last few years, even though it's been touted that way as being, you know, uh, uh, transforming artists into people who think about production in terms of uh, how much money the, they'll make, I, I don't really get the sense of that, uh, that there are artists out there trying to make uh, good work and trying to find an audience. And that's probably the hardest part here is just, actually getting an audience. Well, the, I mean, the thing is that like, there are a lot of people who make art. There are a lot of people who like to buy art. Most of the art that people make is bad. Most of the art that people sell isn't so expensive that the stakes are high enough that when you buy a bad artwork, it's somehow catastrophic, right? We found ourselves in a situation in the last six years where people were buying bad art for too much money and now find themselves holding oftentimes significant collections of young artists who made 
pretty vapid stuff um, and who are all of a sudden feeling like they've been betrayed or like there has been some sort of like cataclysmic um, sell-off, but none of that is actually true, right? It's just that people got very excited and other people with too much money made some, some maybe uneducated moves on, in that respect. And I mean, all I think of a sudden the stakes were too high. The idea that uh, there'd be a sell-off would be the um, end of the story, the climax or even the denouement of the story hmm. kind of mistakes how the art market works. Yeah. It, because if you can sell and therefore sell off, you still have buyers, right. which means you have uh, people interested in your work, which means you're certainly not dead yet, Quite and right. maybe we'll live to fight another day. Mm -hmm. When artists really evaporate is when we never hear from them again. And that happened, that is happened, you know, I, I read across someone who 18 months ago was like a hot shot. And I said, what are you doing now? And he said, I'm an unemployed, East Village artist, and he literally just like, it's just stopped, right? And that happens for people, but that doesn't happen quite as precipitously for a lot of people because they never were brought up to these unsustainable highs in the first place. Well, we also get the sense that, I mean, we're only uh, two thirds of the way, three quarters of the way, way through uh, this year, but this year has been dramatically different from the previous year. It wasn't a, a you know a, a changing of gears. It was a, a complete and abrupt shift. Mm. Uh, and I think it's going to take a while to find out how, how um, pervasive that is, in part by seeing some of these galleries close, unfortunately, because it'll be a sign that they just you know run out of money and haven't made sales in you know nine months. It's, a, it's, it's tough to go nine, 12, 18 months without making a sale and keep your gallery open. Right. Well, you know, I mean, Elise and I, but I mean, even you even more so, I mean, you deal with people who enjoy collecting, who are part of this art world ecosystem. They're not going anywhere. They just are a little bit unsure of... They're holding. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that I think the difference is, is that, you know, people... I was talking to an advisor that pointed this out the other day, that... It's not that people aren't buying, but that they want to buy one thing that's really, really good. Um, but so, you know, that, that they would like to take, you know, their, the um, uh, Israel Lund, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Dan Colon has become such a market in itself. But like, or honestly, even they're like Jonas Wood, they would like to trade one of those in now and get a John Chamberlain, you know, uh, or, or something like that. And so I think that we're seeing, but they, um, but they can't, yeah, because that, or that, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, because none of those works will sell for that much, but I think, I was going to say, oh, you mean do the trade. Oh, they yes, trade. to sell. They can't, yeah, can't to sell. Sell, sell like, that $100,000 have... painting that they bought and buy a $100,000 John Chamberlain sculpture, even if it would be a tabletop, it would still, to the, it's not a trade you can do because you can't get your money out. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that like, and, and having these sorts of work, people don't necessarily want to buy in quantity as much because now you've got... A lot of collectors, I mean, and this was something I reported on art fairs for years, you know, you saw, you would watch these collectors like racing from booth to booth and I want this one and they got it, there's a waiting list, you cannot have it. Like, you know, the, the energy and the, the sense of 
competition and race that comes out around an art fair or really the art fair when it was at the height. I heard this about this person. Oh my God, I should have bought it. I should have bought it. You know, the remorse, you know, then going to the dinners and f comparing buys. I mean, there's this whole kind of social world that's been bought or, you know, built up around this. And I think now people are looking at their storage you know, unit, because most of these arts never see the light of day again, right? They go into the unit, they disappear, and often they never hang in anybody's home, right? They're never seen again, which is actually really, really sad. And so now people are looking Depends at the these artwork. like, you know, yeah, yeah. But I mean, now people are looking at these like massive amounts of storage that they have of artwork that they never look at and are like, why didn't, you know, I buy you know, a, uh, you know, a Paul McCarthy, you know, for, for, for three of these, like, you know, young hot painters, I could have actually had, you know, a sculpture of real merit and of real history. And, and what I think you're saying is they're not complaining about the money spent. They're complaining that they don't have exactly thing the, of the great work, right? They have work that will not matter, you know, and, and that, that we are seeing falling from any world that matters right now. And I think that this happened in 2008, you know, because the art market crashed, a lot of galleries went under, you know, and in a way I think people that stayed strong in the art world were the critical, was, was the, more, the more critical world stayed strong. And I think a lot of people didn't mind the crash. I mean, everybody was hurting when it happened, but looking back, it weeded out. The cream rise rose to the top, well, also, you know? Well, that, that was a crash created by this uh, external force and fear. Even if you uh, uh, still had the wherewithal, there's just a fear you didn't know what else was going to happen in, in the world, and it seemed prudent uh, to take a break for uh, a while. This seems to be the opposite sort of thing, where, where the very boom kind of ran out of steam. Right. But as you're saying, as people are waking up in the cold gray light of morning and saying, you know, like, what is I have, I have all of this stuff. We have come to a time when you can manufacture an artist as well. And I have heard major directors at, you know, the top three behemoth, you know, ga galleries say, it doesn't really matter that I don't like the work. This will be the art or we this will be the artist that we can turn into a million dollar painter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I don't like the work. It doesn't matter that I think the work is bad. This is the person we are choosing and we will make them in to a million dollar painter. And that, I think you can see that with a lot of artists that are represented that it's kind of like, it's the curators that will come in and be like, it's the artists that are represented by major galleries that have had no real museum shows. You know, and that, when you see that disparity, that's when you can tell that is a market that has been created. So these major galleries can make a lot of money. Well, you know, I think, I mean, we, we've gone from just talking about the strength of the current galleries to once again, this um, more exciting, but also less um, tangible, this kind of concept of, what is behind the art market as far as we understand it. And obviously that's partially because we're talking about what makes small galleries fail currently and what makes larger galleries sell. And I think Elise has hit on it quite nicely in the sense that people aren't really willing to take risks and are willing to spend the money, but on something that has more institutional backing and that has a kind of um, firmer foundation, um, both uh, in terms of price in terms of reception and in terms of kind of provenance of other artworks and where they've gone by the similar artist or in the similar vein. 
um, and why that is also kind of effectively dooming for the next year or two um, small galleries that are hoping to make it big. However, what we haven't spoken about is actually, in a sense, how liberating this can be for these smaller galleries who um, previously had been kind of given this carrot, which is sort of like, oh, well, if you participate in this, and if you show up here, and if you spend huge sums of money to kind of be present and appear prosperous, then perhaps you actually can, and perhaps you can push these artists to another level. And like, the, the simple fact is that it doesn't cost any money beyond basic rent to have a gallery, right? To sell art on a fundamental level, as long as you have an artist who is able to produce his or her or their own materials, right? Like, it costs nothing. You have a space, it doesn't need to be well lit, and you put the art in it, right? So when we talk about like the cost of entry into the art market and the art world, you're really talking about the cost of entry to be a quote unquote player on a level that these people are not able to be on anymore, right? This is a level that that is porous, and if you get a little too small, you just fall through. Well, I, I do think it's it's, Interesting, the, you know, going back 30 or 40 years, galleries that showed contemporary art didn't make any money from their new artists. They did that because that's what they cared about and what they were promoting. But in the back room, they made, uh, uh, they bought and sold works on the secondary market. And those, right, and, and those, and those two things to, together made a gallery's a sort of sustainable business uh, over time. Uh, you know, Fast forward through a lot of changes, we now have a primary market and a secondary market. And in the exception of the very large dealers with you know, spaces in, in uh, several continents, it, it, they're, they're not connected. They're on, on either side. We have a lot of private primary, uh, secondary dealers. And we have these the kinds of uh, primary dealers you just talked about who really it's just some space and relationships with artists and collectors that the, the business is built uh, on. Uh, and it's very interesting to see, you know, maybe we got too many uh, uh, primary galleries. Uh, you know. we, do, we do, and the thing is also that because so much of the art world is effectively uh, contingent upon taste, and taste is another word for fashion, and fashion is inherently cyclical, right? Like you see, a, very rapid turnover on levels that you couldn't possibly imagine. Right? We're talking about 2008, 2009, which was basically the ascendancy of the Gagosian Gallery. Right? And in 2009 and even 2010, Gagosian was literally the most important gallery in the world. Now, I certainly don't know anyone who talks about going to shows at Gagosian. It's not, oh, did you see the show at Gagosian? Like, no, one, no one mentions it. Right? Hauser and Wirth and David Swerner right, have totally replaced this, like, you have to see this show at the most important gallery on the planet, right? And so what? Kogosian lasted three, four years as, like, the kind of all-powerful kind of also stand-in for, like, Eye of Sauron? Fine, right? Like, now we have someone else, and very soon we will have someone else, and they're all there kind of right in front of us. It doesn't really matter who it is, but... Also, then people get tired of it. And because so much of the art world and the art market and the art ecosystem is about perception and reception and engagement and attrition, as I say, 
it's going to change. And I think that's fine and healthy. Um, all of which is to say, right, things are different right now. Things are slowing down. Things are going to be changing. Things are really bad for a lot of people. But like, you, it's, 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 a, it's a horrible and also wonderful cycle and constantly produces new things. So what does that do uh, for the art fair season that's about to begin? We're, we're going to have um, uh, TFAF in New York, followed by Freeze in London, uh, followed by Art Basel in uh, Miami. Uh, is this going to be sort of everyone needs to show the flag, but there won't be very many sales made, or people will be selling different artists? What do you see happening out there? Well. What I actually think is interesting currently is that my, I mean, my, this is my perception of it, obviously, and rather than based on any sort of kind of like analysis of what's there. But um, I think that because of we, I think jitters is the current term for what happened uh, in the art world and this kind of like dramatic slowdown um, in sales, galleries really pulled out all the stops to do truly interesting, provocative, maybe even non-marketable shows that were very, that like, I mean, there are a lot of shows that could be contenders for like creating a conversation. These are, these are shows that are trying to really demonstrate a committed program from a lot of different galleries, uptown, downtown, um, Brooklyn to a lesser extent. But um, I mean, you're really seeing this in a profound way, but it also means that when you go into these one single artwork that's not for sale and maybe even can't be taken off the wall shows, right? Like, there has to be a place for you to buy art somewhere else if you are interested in buying art. And I think that the art fairs, which are much less interesting and ever in, in an ever increasing way, right? People don't care about them. They certainly don't read about them. Um, those are becoming increasingly important, I think, in terms of simply just like moving product and a place for people to, I know several people who are fairly large collectors who couldn't really buy something during this most recent spate of openings in Chelsea for whatever reason, um, and who have already gotten lists of things that galleries are bringing to Freeze and are excited about purchasing them. Um, does that mean that Freeze is more important or less important? I'm not sure, but I certainly think that it's a great place for people to actually buy stuff for their walls. Yeah, I mean, I would add on to that that I think the, 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 the fair is also playing a very interesting role right now as replacing the museum as being the primary spot for the public to view art, right? Right now, if you talk to a major company that wants to kind of be involved or sponsor art, um, or even if you talk to a technology company like Instagram that wants to like promote or partner with some sort of art entity to bring art into their world, you talk to Google about this, the first words they're going to say is Art Basel. They're going to say Art Basel and they're going to say Freeze. They're not going to say a museum, right? And I think there's two things going on there. development directors are like bursting into tears as you say this. I, I, know, I mean, it is, it is really sad, but I mean, I, I, it's something that I have seen so clearly over the past year. And I think there's a couple of reasons here. 
one, a museum is located geographically in a certain city. So that automatically reduces the number of eyeballs that it's going to get. Two, you know, art fairs are events and they are actually incredibly democratic where museums feel less democratic. They're also something that's like timely, right? So everybody, it's Art Basel in Miami and it's December and everybody wants, Sam Keller was a genius for doing this, you know? Like, you know, and everybody wants to like get out and go to Miami. Most of those people don't go to the fair, but what that did, you know, to Miami is created, you know, my, the city of Miami, this is a really crazy statistic, makes $500 million in seven days off of Art Basel. That is not including the art that's sold. That has nothing to do with art. That is site fees for tents, that's restaurants, cabs, and hotels. So you know what that did is it created an entire art market that was around a world about not buying art. And I think that you see Freeze doing that with like bringing in, you know, the series of restaurants and there's always kind of like performances that are going on and outdoor participatory things and public sculpture. I mean, there's something that I wrote about a lot was the way that there was such a lifestyle element to what Freeze was doing that was open to the public. And I think with the WME purchase, you know, that, that happened to Freeze, another thing that you could probably say is I would imagine Ari Emanuel was looking at Freeze and thinking about Wimbledon, right? And the way that Wimbledon went from an, a very small, small amount of like niche market to a mass market where now everybody would want to go to. And I think that that has caused art to really, you know, become this kind of like mass place. So it's really, I think that, a hundred percent there is in the in the inner confines of the art world there's the the moving art through and then there's just the fact that if you go i, I was at art basel hong kong this year fascinating when you know the vip open happened it's like the normal it's pretty empty honestly wasn't you know it was fine public opening happens there is a line around three blocks to get into this. It was insane. You could not walk in the halls of Art Basel. There was more, like literally, I mean, I would imagine all of these galleries that like, you know, keep the gallery assistants on until Sunday were terrified about all the art being knocked over um, and, and ruined because there's so many people you just could not move in this space. And that shows this thirst to experience culture. Uh, MCH just bought a majority stake in the India Art Fair, which has something like 100,000 visitors. Uh, and it, it, you know, India has its, an interesting art life and history, but there are certainly not 100,000 Indian art buyers uh, you know, among the population. Uh, and, and just the success of art in that fair shows, again, is there is this gap between the importance of art and artists and this middle ground of people, whether it's the museum attendants or the art fair attendants, or you know, building the vessel in um, uh, Hudson Yards that, that everyone's struggling to figure out how to close uh, the gap on. Uh, yeah, it is, it's one of those fascinating things. What, what does WME want with Freeze? How big can you make something like Freeze? I mean, Art Basel is extraordinary for its brand recognition. I think there are many more people know what Art Basel is than will ever go to any one of the yeah, fairs. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and I think that the other thing you can see in reaction to this is if you look at the old school advisors, you know, the the um, Thea Westreichs, the Philippe Sigalos, you know, the um, uh, Alan Schwartzmans, you know, they probably take these fairs a lot less seriously than they used to, right? Because those sorts of the appreciation of, of art 
is probably not happening as deeply, you know, within those fairs. It's not really, you know, I know several advisors that didn't go to freeze, you know, when it happened uh, in New York because it was also auction week. And that's where those, those major paintings that people are spending major money on, they're not moving through freeze. They're not being bought. Nobody's walking in and viewing a Carrie James Marshall at, you know, at, at David's Werner's booth and then being like, oh, I want that because they just happened to find it at Freeze Art Fair, you know, or at Art Basel. And so, you know, I think that there is also this kind of like moving with that trend of people really wanting, you know, one specific, like having one great piece of art instead of seven bad pieces of art or seven fine Pieces well, of just art. pieces of art wall that don't dressing, have a story. Yeah, dressing, that, that, that right? nobody's going to know what you're talking about when you tell them the, the story behind this work of art. Uh, it somewhat defeats the purpose of owning it. The one thing that I would disagree with is that actually I was stunned but saw, like, it was literally shown to me. There is an element of discovery. People who these galleries have never heard of before, mm -hmm. ever, will walk into the tent, at least in Freeze in New York, will walk into the tent and buy like a half million dollar work of art. I was, I was astonished as you might be, but um, the, like that actually is, is a thing. Um, and I genuinely don't think that if it wasn't a thing, they wouldn't still do it because the cost of getting all these artworks to all these different places, no matter where you are on the planet, and the cost of housing all of your staff and also paying the eighty or $90,000 for this space to, I mean, look, everyone gets slide lists or, or PDFs with comps of what these artworks are. Everyone can look at really high-def things. Everyone can even have these things sent to them and then send it back if they don't want it. Right? The reason that these people are literally like old-fashioned medieval fair, like days of yore, taking the cow to the other village is because right, like they are bringing their cow to a market where there would not otherwise be a market. Right? Yeah. And that is ultimately, I think, why these things are so appealing. And it's also ultimately why so many people who can't really afford to do these things do them, because there's this hope that you're going to expand and broaden your client base. Um, but I, I mean, all of which, is, like, that, that's just a minor quibble, really, because I completely agree with you, right? In a certain respect, I, and actually, basically, that almost corroborates what you're saying in the sense that art fairs increasingly are not just for collectors, they're also for the public. And the public sometimes buys art. And that's very different than someone who collects art um, a lot of the time. And, and the public wants to participate in art. I mean, those tens of thousands of people who go to most art fairs uh, are not buyers, but they are people who want to have the cultural currency of being able to see what's around, what they like, what they recognize and know from some other uh, uh, place. I mean, it is. You're paying your whatever, $30, $40 to be entertained in the sense that you're engaging in this thing called the art world that uh, only recently has been made at least physically visible in the form of an art fair. Uh, Elise, uh, uh, James, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 